This morning we are looking at this interesting story of Amalek. So let's take a moment and pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we um, thank you that you can accept our mistakes, that you can help us to focus, and we pray that even this ancient story that is so far removed from our present moments and what we, we might think having no consequence on us now, I pray you would show us the fact that it is a part of our story, not only our heritage, but Father, you are the God who rescues. You are the God who saves us in the midst of the desert and from our enemies. And so we see the fresh application this morning. I pray your spirit open our eyes as we look at the passage. In your name we pray. Amen. The other day, Coleman was watching Bonnie. Our, Bonnie's our five-year-old. And they came out together to show us a Lego that Bonnie had built. Bonnie said, look at this Lego I made. Of course, Coleman was being really nice, kind of smiling, because what I knew was Coleman built the entire thing himself. See, Bonnie is in that stage that almost every child goes through where it's simply by watching or maybe putting in an ingredient, in her mind, she's done everything, right? And that's really, I think, not necessarily a bad thing. Do we realize that God is the one doing everything? That's really the question of this passage. Or do we start to think we actually did it all ourselves without the, without the help of our Father? And as we're looking at this story, and this, really the life of Moses, I want to remind us of what's happening. We are being dr- brought back into this ancient story. It's not just an example of what Moses did. It's actually your story. If you're a Christian, this is like reading your family history. But it's more than that, right? We've talked about the fact that Every one of these passages really points to Jesus. And so now, as Christians living after Jesus has come and lived his life and died and ascended, we're in a desert now. We're spiritual Israel. And we're in this time where we've been rescued, like the Red Sea, but we haven't entered the promised land. We haven't gone into glory. We're longing for that. And so we can see these stories and learn what it might be like to have faith in the midst of the dryness and the difficulty of life. And the question that's, I'm hoping, starting to burn in our minds is how can we grow in our faith in the mundane lives we live, in the daily lives that we live? Are we growing Christians? Is that our desire? Or are we boring? Are we, um, one of the things I'd like to point out is this question that this morning I think is going to open up. Are we practically living like atheists? Where maybe in our proverbial foxhole we cry out to God, but, but other than that, we, we do our thing, and we really don't give him much thought at all. What we're going to see this morning is that we see Moses and the, all the Israelites, actually, this is a good story for them. right? The past few stories have been a bit negative. Remember, um, they, they, we didn't read the passage, but they cried out for water because it was bitter, and God made it unbitter, but they were kind of negative and grumbling. And then they didn't have food, and they grumbled. So God provided food. And then, last week we saw that they didn't have water, and they quarreled and really wanted to put Moses on trial. So in each of those stories, Israel is kind of the bad guy a little bit, right? But in our story, Amalek is the bad guy who's attacking Israel. Israel's doing the right thing. And what we're going to see in that is there are enemies that we have, and the question is, are we recognizing those enemies? That's our first point we're going to look at. Are we relying on the Father? That'll be our second point. And do we understand we need help? And that'll be our third point. So, this first point, do you recognize your enemies? Okay. Do you, I know when the passage is being read, uh, she does a much better job than I ever could 
but it's easy to get distracted. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but to paraphrase, Israel is now in this area near Mount Horeb, also Mount Sinai, and they're just camped out. They're living their life. And along comes Amalek. Amalek is the grandson of Esau, who obviously was uh, the brother of Jacob, and the, 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 always sort of a thorn in the flesh for Israel, starting here, right? And he comes in the rear, and he starts to make war with Israel. So, God, Moses, I've got to get my characters right, not Shane's son. Moses, Moses says to Joshua, which is, by the way, Joshua's first appearance in the Bible, right? Joshua's going to take over from Moses later. Jo- uh, Moses tells Joshua, prepare yourself, get some men, and go fight. Now, I want to just remind us that Israel is more advanced than we might think. We sometimes get stuck in a coloring book model of Christianity, but Israel is pretty advanced. We mentioned last week that when they were upset about the water, it wasn't that they didn't have a drink for that day or that week, but it was rather that they were at a place where they recognized this is not sustainable. We need a source of water, okay? They had cattle. They had a lot going on. There's hundreds of thousands of people, and now... Uh, here we find out they actually have the ability to make war. When they raided the Egyptians, they took a ton of metal. And more. it seems like, scholars would think, that Joshua and some men had already prepared and practiced warfare. Okay, This is screaming for a Braveheart illustration. I'm going to resist as hard as I can, but it's something similar, right? Uh, archaic weapons, but men that were ready to fight. And this is what we have uh, in this story. And so, God, so Moses tells Joshua to go in and, and get in the fight. And what's going to happen is, while Joshua's in the fight, Moses is going to go to the top of the hill with two guys, Aaron and Hur, and they're going, to, they're going to sustain the fighting from the hill. And that's what we're going to look at. But the first point is the fact that there is this battle. There is this war going on. There is this enemy. And that's the thing I want to draw our attention to, because I think one of the reasons our Christianity can get so boring one of the reasons we get so stuck in the mud is we really do forget the battle. We really do forget there's this raging battle against us until something happens, something disastrous, and then, like I said a moment ago, we'll pray. But the question is, are you daily aware of the fact that there is a battle? I want to draw our attention to Ephesians 6, where Paul says, He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Wow, that's big. And I think in America, we don't know what to do with this. I say that in the Western world because we have really removed ourselves from the supernatural. I've talked before about Schaefer's work, uh, True Spirituality, where he talks about the two chairs, the natural chair and the supernatural chair. And his point is, Christians really ought to sit in the chair philosophically of the supernaturalist. The awareness that all around us, even if we can't see it, there is a warfare going on. And the scriptures defined three ways the enemy attacks, right? The enemy attacks the world. That's the most obvious way. ISIS, right? Um, I saw this is going to be an extreme other jump, but um, you, you know, I was looking at Facebook and I saw someone posted a picture of a black widow, 
And I was, I was freaked out. So I have a, I have a, a uh, phobia of spiders, but also that black widow could bite me. So there's, there's attacks from the world, right? Okay, but there's also the devil. How many of you, I'm not going to do a show of hands, you're modern people, many of you work for a, maybe OSU or you're going there, you're, you're smart. How many of you believe in the devil? No one's going to shake it, raise their hands. Maybe Matthew. Okay, we've got a couple. No, you don't need to raise your hands. But what do we do with that? Right? I mean, some Christians they get so stuck on that kind of thing uh, that they get off track. But there is, we have to keep that mindset. Peter tells us the devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And especially, by the way, if you actually are following Jesus and your life's looking a little bit threatening to, to Satan, the devil will attack. So that's the second kind of battle. And then, but the third aspect would be the fact that probably the most least understood aspect of the enemy is the enemy that dwells within us. That we are sinful. Now, even though we've been redeemed, if we are Christians and the Holy Spirit has come, the scriptures are very clear that we still have inside of us the flesh. That is the part of us that resists God. And we can be completely sidetracked if we're not careful of these enemies. And, and so Paul lays out in Ephesians 6 this armor of God. And I would encourage us to study it. Obviously now we're not going to unpack that whole passage. But it, it's an active engagement in warfare that we see there. And we see that, of course, all the way back in our passage with Joshua. I want to draw your attention to the fact that it's important. Joshua and these men, and we presume a lot of them, actually had real weapons in their hands, and they had shields, and they were engaging moment-by-moment warfare, fighting, swinging whatever weapon it was. We know there were arrows, probably swords. I don't know if they had that cool ball with the spikes on it, with a chain, you know, or nunchucks, maybe. Maybe there was somebody with, I don't know. But it was active, and it was engaging. And I would ask you guys, if that is a way you think of your spiritual life, as engaging in battle, um, is that something that crosses your mind? I would also like to add that for Joshua and these men, they were probably in their wheelhouse. Does that make sense? I mean, this was, they were ready for this. This was not like, oh, shocking, I've got to do this. They were kind of ready for warfare. And yet, what we're going to look at at point two is the entire time they were engaged in this battle, whatever they were doing, Moses is up on a hill with his hands raised. And I want to talk now about that connection. The fact that we need to know there's a battle is point one, but we also need God the Father's provision, point two. This is very easy to miss. I think we all recognize this in theory, but we might miss what's going on. So it says... Verse 10, so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Okay, very easy to read that and go, interesting, right? Um, but if you, when you tell a story, there's always the perspective of a story. Imagine Joshua's perspective. He just finished this war. Amalek is completely slain, or at least they've retreated, okay? We know that he survived and went on. And he comes back to the, you know, the, gr- the crowd and said, did you see what we did? And they're like, yeah, we saw that whenever that 80-year-old's hands were in the air, you guys won. And whenever that guy's hands were droopy, you guys were losing. 
Can you imagine that feeling? What? No. I was like swinging this, and I was doing that. I took down that. How many did you get? They're living on this high of what they accomplished. But the reality is, the, the whole picture that we're seeing when you back up is that it was all because of God's provision. Whenever Moses' hands were raised, God's provision, Israel seemed to prevail, right? Now, are you able to see God's role in your times of success? Everybody here who's a believer has no problem when they struggle, when we are in difficulty to go, I need you, God. But the question is, when things are going really well, when you're succeeding, when your goals are happening like you would like them to happen, are you thinking, thank you, Father, you're the one doing this? I'm going to quote Schaefer again. It's because of you, or Abby's left. Now I can quote Schaefer without worrying about a misquote. He has three mysteries he talks about from the Bible. These aren't, he didn't make this up, but he just put it in one of his writings. But there are three mysteries that, as a church, we can't fully get our mind around, but we need to talk about. The first is the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We talk about that. It's hard to get our mind around how that works. The second mystery is how Jesus is both fully God and fully man. You have to have both of those in tension, right? It's important. These are, this is your theological teaching for the moment. Do you believe that he's 100% God and 100% man? Those are two mysteries, but the third one that's equally a mystery is the role between what we do, the relationship between what man does and what God does, right? We've been saved, we come into the kingdom, and, and here we are going. We believe that God saves us monergistically by himself, but now that we're saved, what do we do? And the reality is you'll never find an action you're engaged in that you're doing completely on your own without God's help. At the same time, you'll never find anything that God does while you sit down. I'm pretty sure that if Joshua stopped to eat a sandwich, he would have been in trouble. He needed to fight. He needed to have that weapon. He needed to have that shield. He needed to be doing the thing God called him to do, but nonetheless, equally, and maybe, again, it's that mystery. It's not 50-50. It's 100% and 100%. God had to be the one intermeeting, which is why they needed Moses' hands in the air. And so as we talk about our Christian faith, and we're trying to figure out, are we walking with Christ? Are we growing? The first point asks, do I recognize that there's a battle? Do I recognize there's, recognize there's an enemy? Am I aware of that? And then the second point asks, do I recognize that God's involved in every detail of my life? What does that look like? I mean, true spiritual maturity comes, I believe, not, again, I'm going to reiterate this point, not when you rely on God in the difficult times, though that's a great beginning. But true spiritual maturity really takes hold when you realize in the things that I excel at, in the things where I'm very tempted to just say, let me go, I'm ready to do this, I've got this project, I've got this thing. Those are the times we need to pray and connect to the Father and recognize He's the one working in and through us in these times. True spiritual maturity arises in those points. And then thirdly, and probably of all these points, I think this one's really getting at the heart of, our, of what we need to grow in Christ, is we need help. Right? There is a battle, we need God, but we also need help. Now, Needing God is help, but what do I mean, right? Moses, in this passage, is really a picture of the mediation of Christ. Moses is the mediator. For Joshua and his, and his men to do well, 
They need Moses on this hill with his hands in the air, with his staff. And it's a really interesting picture because he's, he, he goes up this hill, but what does he do right away? He invites, he tells Joshua, I'm taking Moses and Aaron, or I'm taking Aaron and her with me. But he doesn't get up to the hill and realize, oh, this is going to be really difficult. This is going to take longer than I thought. He prepares for the fact that he needs help to keep his hands up, and he goes up and they have help. And the way the story unfolds, he's holding his staff up, and he gets tired, and he droops, right? And so they help him by getting a rock to sit on. So he's propped. I envision him actually probably standing against this rock. And then also I envision him holding the staff, which is the banner of the Lord, in the air, right? The staff. And they're helping him hold that staff up. So they need help. And I think that as I've observed the leaders in our church, myself, and and leadership in general, people who tend toward leadership really struggle with asking for help. It's like anathema to go, I'm going to need help here. How good are you at needing help? Right? I would really love to know. I I can't do that in a sermon, but why are we so bad at saying, I need you? I need somebody. I need your help in this situation. Um, You know, one of my favorite things to do, as weird as that sounds, as a pastor, is to be there when somebody says, hey, I need to come in and talk to you and what, sometimes I'll have folks come in and we'll set up passwords for uh, internet blockers, things like that, because people are saying, I need help. I need someone to give me help because on my own, I will struggle in this way. Or other people will come in and confess other sins and say, I need you to walk with me. And are we doing that with one another? Not only being there to help, but are you confessing your sins to each other? Or is that weakness? I think for the most part, we, we tend to think of that as weakness. And yet Moses planned it. He knew, I'm going up. And not that he was sin, sinning and getting weak, but he knew his frailty. And he knew he would go up there, and the only way it could work is if he had someone on his left and someone on his right. And that's probably our biggest weakness in the American church, and even at Grace. We really want to put on a show. We talk about grace. I'm a big sinner. But we try to live as if we've got it all together. Are we opening up with each other? Are we saying, will you pray for me? Are we confessing our sin? Are we confessing our struggle? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard to be honest that we need help. It's hard to be honest that that's the actual design of sanctification. The idea of growing in Christ, becoming a a solid Christian the way the world talks about it, becoming a holy person, is really by going downward. The way you grow is by being more and more honest with who you really are in your heart and repenting of your sin and saying to somebody else, I'm tired of playing the game. Have you done that? Have you opened up to other people? Can you name people you're walking with and trudging through this battle with? And so we see Moses on this mountain with this banner, right? And how does that reference to Jesus? Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is the one who would come. And a lot of scholars that I was reading are trying to figure out, okay, how does this relate to Jesus? And, and let me say that the temptation of many scholars is to say, okay, maybe the outstretched arms, I know that looks really funny with the coat on this button, the outstretched arms of Moses re- reveal Christ's outstretched arms maybe, right? And then 
Um, I got a nod from my uh, Hebrew brother in the back. But that's actually probably not the best, though that's not a horrible comparison. But the reality is Jesus is the final mediator. What do I mean? Moses, at this part of his life, I don't know if you've noticed, he stopped being the bad guy who kind of was not getting it to being someone that you don't even know when God's talking to him. So when he tells Joshua what they're going to do, the presumption is God gave him that command. He is so close to God that they've had a conversation. Now, that may be debatable. Remember in chapter 17, it says the whole congregation, verse 1, this is last week's sermon, went out by, by different uh, groups, right? According to the command of God. It became clear that Moses had a commandment from God that we weren't told about. And so, same here, again, at the beginning of our passage, there's a commandment of Moses to go up on this mountain and be a mediator. The, the banner of the Lord, the staff, is the very staff that turned the Nile to blood. It's the very staff that struck the rock and created water. And now it's the staff that's lifted up high in the air. That God is, it's, it's the picture of God's presence in the battle, but it needs this human being, Moses, to stand there and lift it up. You need a man. You need someone. And so Jesus is that man, isn't he? And he comes. He comes to earth and he lived a perfect life and he lived, had a three-year ministry and then he died what we would call a perfect death. That is without sin. But I want to draw our attention to John chapter 14 because Jesus, even though he was perfect, makes a similar concept statement that Moses makes that um, he's weary. Let me be clear. Jesus was not tired. He could do it. But the design was that Jesus needed to go away, that we would have someone else come that would carry our arms for us and intermediate for us more. And if you look at, um, of course, it's the Trinity, it's the Holy Spirit, so it's Jesus, His Spirit coming into us. Chapter 14, verse 5, He says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Just a few verses earlier, He says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You have known Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And then again, Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am sending My Spirit into your heart. I think this is the most misunderstood concept in Christianity because we can't see the Holy Spirit. So some people overemphasize, I'm not trying to critique anybody, but there's a tendency to want to overemphasize what that might mean. But for Presbyterians, and for everyone in this room, I promise you, except for maybe one of you, I don't even know which one, we underemphasize the Holy Spirit. We really, what is your theology of the Holy Spirit? Do you have any idea what the Holy Spirit does? It's like we're, we don't know. The Holy Spirit, I'm not, I'm not saying you, I'm sure several of you would give me perfect answers to that question. This is not me condemning the group. This is me confessing my sin that I have long tried to live my life with the understanding of a Holy Spirit up here, but having no practical idea of what that means. But the Holy Spirit mediates all the blessings of the covenant of Christ to us. That's how we have the blood of Christ applied to us. And He dwells in you. He is called the Spirit of Adoption. And you are now, if you are in Christ, a new creation. You are a son and or not and or you are a son or a daughter of, of God. 
It's 100% factual about you. And so if you're in Christ, you are new. So His going away and sending the Spirit is that His church may expand, and individually we are all part of this army, right? We're part of this kingdom expanding. And God is your banner. Is that your view? And is that how we live? And what does that provide? What does that mean? That means, if you go to Romans 8, he says if you're in the Spirit, there's no condemnation. You can live in Christ, not because of what you've done or not done, but because of what the Spirit has done in you and continues to do through you. And so, um, an interesting picture of that, of, of the Spirit dwelling in us and our ability to connect to the Spirit, I think you have a glimpse of it in the Transfiguration, in a weird place, where Jesus goes up on a mountain, only Moses is on the mountain, and Elijah's on the mountain, and they look so transfigured that Peter, that the disciples are there going, we want to worship you. Right? But what I'm fascinated by in that passage is down on the ground, down the hill, in the village, I don't know how that all worked, there was another problem. There was a demon-possessed man, and the disciples that did not go up to the mountain said, we can't cast that demon out. And Jesus came back down. They said, what's going on here? Well, this demon won't leave him. So Jesus cast out the demon, and then he says, some of these demons require some prayer. And you read that and think, oh, so some demons are really bad. Some things, some problems are really, really bad. No. Jesus is saying, just because I'm up on this mountain doesn't mean you're left alone. I am the transfigured one who dwells with you, and if you're going to cast out a demon, you have to do it in my name. I'm the one casting that out. Now, don't leave this sermon thinking Ryan's into casting out demons. Though I am. If there are any demons that you want to cast out, go for it. I've never seen it done. But what I am for is trusting that the Holy Spirit is present, that all the fullness of the deity of Christ dwells with you bodily, and you are in Him. Is that your view? And so in that, you win the battle. This is where I'm going to get really cheesy and then really serious. You're going to win the battle, like Joshua. You're going to be in this fight, and when the hands of Jesus are up, which they always are, they never get tired anymore. You're going to win. But what does it mean that sometimes the Amalekites seem to be prevailing? I was talking with him. I, I try to voice out. I could be wrong. I think I was talking to you too, Doug. I'm like trying to work out these sermons throughout the week. Going For me, if I'm thinking, how would you direct this as a movie? There are going to be some people dying. Did you, when the Amalekites are winning... Some Hebrew, some Israelite men are dying. Would, theologically, we'd agree with that. So, please understand, this is the final last thought of how we mature as Christians. Your goal is to not have this life go perfectly. But your goal is to rest in the fact that you have the future already present. Your longing is to be with God in heaven. And this life, now that we're hidden with Him, True Christian maturity comes when I live this life with that in mind. Yes, we want blessings. I want my children to be healthy. I want good education. I want all of you to grow in wealth and in your jobs. And I want Stillwater to be the greatest town to live in in all of Oklahoma and every magazine. But even if that stuff doesn't happen the way I want it to go, we have Jesus. We've won the battle. And we can rest knowing that his arms are always raised, and that his spirit is mediating that, 
into our lives so that we now can turn and love others and lead them to Him. Is that your hope? Is that what you're sinking your teeth into? If it's not, and by the way, I know for every one of us, most every day, it's not part of the day. We repent. We go to Jesus and say, Father, forgive me. I, I run from you. I wander from you. I, I have fantasy life. I, I have sin patterns I struggle with. In the areas I'm actually succeeding in, I'm doing it as if I'm an orphan because I think I don't need you, and I do. And so we pray for forgiveness. Lord, will you forgive me? And, and he wraps his arms around us, and that's the dwelling place we want to be in this side of heaven. Even the meal we're about to partake is a time, not even, especially where we come, not as people who have it together, but those that come together saying, I need a Savior. I need the blood of Christ. And we come. And that is what Christianity looks like. And that's when the boringness will go away. Is when you're willing to repent and confess your sins to the Father and to each other and live in that demeanor with authenticity.